Good morning, church. I'm going to go straight into Scripture, invite you to turn on, open, whatever device you're using, scroll, pull out the scroll. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12. When you come to worship me, who ask you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts, the incense of your offering, disgust me as for your celebrations, and the new moons and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they're sinful and false. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Ouch. This is the word of our God. I have a confession to make. For the first 13 years of me being a Christian, I never really paid close attention. I never really thought deeply about worship. The reason is a confession because I was also four years in a theological seminary and pastored the church for five years during those 13 years. So doing all of those things, I was just kind of following everybody else when it comes down to worship. I learned to worship just like I learned to pray, like many of us learn to worship and pray by observing others. What I taught and preached about worship during those years was what I was taught and told by others. Of course, there were a lot of worship debates and so forth, but everything came through this superficial level of observation and just following and doing what everyone else is doing. Until the summer, August of 2004, I took a small group from my church, Valley Seventh-day Adventist Church, just down in Menifee, for an evangelistic trip to my hometown, Odessa, Ukraine. By the way, there was uh, two people in our praise team today with the Russian names. Did you notice? Svetlana and Natasha. How cool is that? Svetlana is actually, her father is from Ukraine. So we went to Ukraine, and in Odessa, we were doing evangelistic meetings, but on the Sabbath morning, we would go visit different churches. There were seven churches in Ukraine. Only two of them had buildings of their own. Five other churches would rent the place that they could afford. This particular church that we're about to um, visit, we're renting a place at the resort. Not giving it much thought, we took the bus, got off the bus, walked about a quarter of the mile, came to the massive big wooden doors, and when I opened the door, I think a little sound came out of my lungs. 
from what I saw. The best way to describe it, remember a couple of years ago, everybody was crazy um, about um, Ice Bucket Challenge. Remember Ice Bucket Challenge? How many of you have done it? I loved watching it because some, some, um, sometimes people would um, just kind of silently say a word that not necessarily reflects um, the best of the language, but surely describes the feeling. Especially when the eyes back, it was unexpected. People go like <laughs> I saw a hall with a painted dark blue walls and the murals of celebrities. And I'm not talking about celebrities necessarily picked for their um, musical abilities. Let me just give you the list. Marilyn Monroe, Madonna, TLC, remember TLC, all three of them. Backstreet Boys, and of course, Elvis Presley and Freddie Mercury. All staring at me in a ginormous size. I was like, wow, that's a different church. And then a little bit toward the right, there was a stage with all kinds of sound and light equipment on it. The lights were blinking on the stage from all the, all the equipment there. I was like, wow. A gigantic, probably the biggest disco ball I've ever seen in my life was pulling down the black ceiling right in the middle. And to complete the ambience were four stainless steel poles around the perimeter of the hall. I thought maybe those are for the constructional purposes. They were not. Somebody saw my hesitation, came to me and said, вы знаете, это не, это, мы здесь не проводим богослужение, мы проводим богослужение в следующей комнате. Which translates something like, this is not where we worship. We're going to worship to the adjunct room. We just have to go through this hall to get to the place of our worship. But we will return to this room for foot washing later on. <laughs> to make the long story short, in about an hour, I was sitting under one of those poles doing foot washing. That pole had its share of seeing legs and feet, if you know what I mean. And I was doing foot washing with a man on a wheelchair with the legs missing, which is a topic for a completely different sermon, how you do that. When I went back in the room, I gave a puzzle and looked to the pastor. I said, how? And he said, Vadim, Израильтяне служили Богу в Египте, в пустыне, в Вавилоне. I'm not going to torture you anymore. Egypt, Israelites serve God in Egypt, desert, and Babylon. And they somehow managed to do that. At least we have a roof over our heads. Ever since that, the issue of worship, the place of worship, logistics of worship, 
come up on the back of my mind all the time, like an engine check light in my Corolla after 200K. It's blinking all the time. I haven't heard the two heated debates lately, but just a while ago, and I assume the parts of the world and, and, and the circuits at our church, there's still debates. My very first denominational interview, I went to interview um, a church in this conference. I'm not going to name the church. We sat down, it's a lovely people. Um, they, they welcome, they, they um, spent first 10 minutes trying to pronounce my last name, which was fun. And then we dived into it. The very first question, can you guess? I'll just do a little quick. What do you think was the very first question? You meet a person who came all the way from Ukraine, finished the seminary in Russia, volunteered as a work as an intern in church in America. What do you ask that person the very first question? Hmm? Oh, I wish. I was prepared to answer that. I had my theology line now, my life story. What do you think about using drums in the worship? Somebody guessed? You know, my man. My jaw dropped. I thought that interview ended before it even started. And I said, let me ask you a question. What kind of instrument is tambourine, is, and cymbal? They looked puzzled at me, and I said, oh, I see the Bible on your shelf here. Let me pull it out. Psalm 150, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heaven, praise him for his mighty works, praise him unquelled greatness, praise him with the blast of the ram's horn, praise him with the lyre and harp, praise him with the tambourine, and have to be careful. Praise him with strings and flutes. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with loud, cleaning cymbals. Not just like little tiny, like, you know, sometimes drummers in the church bring a little, like, um, brushes and they go like, tss, tss, tss. no, that was like, praise him. Psh. That's how you praise him. Let everything that breathes sing praises to our God. Praise the Lord. Do I need to mention that I never heard from the church ever again? People have different styles of worship. We all worship differently. The same church, Valley Seminary Adventist Church, I had a wonderful lady, I'm going to change your name. Let's name her Marguerite. Marguerite had a wonderful gift. The moment I get up to read the scriptures, she was out, sleeping, just cold. And that would be fine. Except a little tiny lady, maybe like four foot five, maybe, not taller than that. And she was sitting like third, fourth row. And every single time she would fall asleep, you'll hear snoring. And it wasn't like a little, like, little, like, it was like just loud, like, like cymbals and tambourines through the whole thing. 
it is just keep going on and on. It's like that's a one way of, of worshiping. And one day I thought I would get smart with her. She was walking out of the chair, I was shaking hands, and I said, How did you like the sermon today, Marguerite? She said, Pastor, you don't understand. Every time you preach, it tells me that Jesus is coming soon. And I wasn't sure how to take it like a really profound preaching or is it just Matthew 24, like disaster and earthquake. Different people have different way of worshiping. We spend a lot of times talking about logistics, about style and sound. But in our text today, it seems like this is not what Isaiah tells us what concern of God is. Is God concerned about the worship, about the same things we are concerned? We know that from the beginning, the logistics of worship were very specific. They were giving specific instruction on how to do it, and it seems like everything had to be done according to the letter of the law. And people would lose their lives if they don't follow the instructions of worship. But when we get to the time of Isaiah, something happens. The logistics, the stretched hands, which should not be a problem for Adventists, right? We don't raise our hands. We just kind of keep them behind. I was told, I don't know if that's a story or not, that why Protestants pray with their hands in the pockets. You know why? Because they didn't want to look like Catholics who pray like this. So... In the beginning, the, the tradition came to pray with your hands in your pockets. Maybe that's why we keep them down. God doesn't care about raised hands. He doesn't care what kind of translation of the Bible we use. He does not care about if we sing from the hymnal or from Hillsong Incorporated. What seemed to be important to God is not the style and sound, not the logistics, not the things that are happening, but the people who participate in worship. And now we go back and it kind of starts making sense because if you think about it, the instruction of people, of what kind of people the followers of God ought to be, and the instructions of worship were given almost at the same time. Exodus 20 is 10 commandments. Exodus 25, Moses, look up. You see this building. You see this model? Build a tabernacle. And it seems like the, the, the instructions of how to be people of God in the commandments and how to go about being people of God in worship seem to be two sides of the same path that leads us into the new kind of life. Because what Moses is giving instructions to worship, there's a clear distinction. This is the nation who is just learning new identity. For 400 years, they became slaves. Even their worship in Egypt, there were so many elements. Worship in Egypt was giving allegiance to narcissistic ego of the Pharaoh. Worship, as it was given and instructed by God, 
and given to Moses had a completely different emphasis. God says, the worship that I'm inviting you to do is not for the sake of me, but for the sake of people who are learning how to become free again. Worshiping the divine deliverer frees and lifts up and just escaping the Israel was not, escaping Egypt was not enough. What was needed is this regular routine of learning how to be free people. When we got to the time, just a few hundred years past, when we got to the time of Isaiah, it seems like Israelites got their logistics down. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on discussing in what time in history Isaiah wrote the, or I mean, it's hard to imagine that one author would cover the period of 150 years. So theologians debate back and forth on how Isaiah was written. I don't want to get into this today, but what is important that the audience that Isaiah has in mind, conveying words of God, the people who experience a deep crisis in their worship experience, and not because God did something. The temple is destroyed. How do you worship? How are you phantom? The themes that occur in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, Hosea, this theme of something is missing. You thought that your worship and your logistics will give the legitimacy of your relationship with God, and they not. And now the temple is destroyed. And where is God when there's no temple? Where do they go? What do they do? How to resolve that conundrum? Isaiah gives them a liturgical eyes back a challenge. He said, you preoccupy with logistics so much, but logistics don't guarantee the legitimacy. What is missing, the part that was inherently in the act of worship, is that why you worship and what worship is. And this is not a just a kind of fun um, way or philosophy or um, a ritual that people agree to do. Worship, by its definition, means to giving worth to someone to giving worth to putting someone in front of self, putting someone before self. And the only true selfless community that demonstrates the worship is the triune God, where Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit continually worship each other in a selfless service to one another, giving glory to one another. So when we talk about worship, it is not just what we decide to come up with that will make us feel special or satisfy a certain needs that we have. When we come to worship, we make a very important claim about who God is. In worship that is centered on self, distorts the image of God. 
That is why the details and logistics of worship are important, but also the focus of worship is what gives it legitimacy. We live in a society when somehow our, even our worship experiences succumb to this cultural consumerism. We go to church as we would go to a restaurant trying to look at the church service as a menu and pick what we like, what we don't. I have to be very careful here that I'm about to say. If Christian life is truly being born again, we have to admit that rebirth requires redying. To die over and over again. To die for self. Luke 9. You can't be born again if you don't die. And dying is not a pleasant and comfortable feeling. It's just not. First, we worship to bring glory to God. Paul in Ephesians beautifully says that our purpose is to give glory to God. But then we die. And if you start looking at the elements and the things we do during the worship, it starts with the call to worship and adoration, and then it moves into the prayer in which we confess that we are just sinners. We have to die again. And it's not a pleasant thing. Churches today try to model their worship to meet the culture, to satisfy the needs. We like to come up with a trendy Jesus who likes a single origin coffee, goes to the gym, and not a stranger at the tattoo parlor. That kind of cool hipster Jesus certainly helps to bring people to church and, and certainly helps with the financial stability, and it makes church relevant. But relevancy to the culture does not bring legitimacy to our relationship with God. What does? A simple thing. There's only one spiritual test in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't matter what logistics for your service, what music style you use. It doesn't matter what time you start your service, what time you end. It doesn't matter what kind of coffee you serve, the church serves. What it matters is how much you care for the other. And do we come to the worship service seeking our own satisfaction, seeking something that would satisfy me, seeking something that would help me with my own issues and problems? Or we come thinking what this worship service would do with someone? Would, this worship, would my participation in the service today help someone else to have this life-changing encounter? Worship is participating in the life of God. It is nothing short of this. And imagine if what it means not only for the Sabbath hour, that kind of life changes not only what we do here, but how we go about embodying this life of the triune God in our everyday life. We matter in worship. But our worship, and so much concern what we do about God, but worship is not what we do about God or what we say about God. 
Worship is what God is about all of the people. And when I say all, I mean all. Isaiah gives us this liturgical eyes back. And I wonder if people of Babylon, if people, Israelites in Babylon captivity, felt the same way maybe I felt when I opened that door. As you can imagine, in a, we have children here, late night entertainment place. that I had to go through in order to get to the worship space. I wonder if that can be a metaphor of our lives today, that we all come together and worship through Babylon, through the places like this. But when the world pushes and teaches to judge, and, 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 and it comes in the culture when we learn to satisfy our needs and consume. What we do here subverts the reality and reorders and changes everything. When I look around, I look at the stained glass window, and I wonder what kind of stories this glass could tell us. Imagine what these windows have seen and heard. But it also becomes a metaphor for all of us. Because I can imagine that worship is really becoming one of those little pieces. All different shapes and kinds that all of us come together. Letting the light through in all different forms and shapes, bringing the loveliness that underscores that we, every little piece there is important. No matter how small or how misshaped it is, worship is about care for the other. And it feeds in the theme of the justice that we've been talking for the last few weeks. What makes our worship legitimate? Participating in the life of God, who, as we learned, is mishpat, a restorative justice, and the tzedakah, loving kindness. What can I say? May the light shines through.